0: Life happens when you're making other plans. We all have examples of something in life that takes us out of nowhere and whilst we've been making other plans. They're the things that throw us into absolute chaos and distract us from what it is that we actually want to be doing. But it doesn't have to be that way. Hi, I'm Sarah Stoddart, Director at Vitality Law Australia, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast.
1: Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership. The PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today, we're sharing a session that was hosted at the 2022 Tasmanian Pharmacy Conference. Now, this conference focused on the potential for community pharmacists to work to their full professional scope in our current rapidly changing environment. When owning a business, unexpected events may throw you for a loop and have devastating impacts. But what if you expect the unexpected? In this episode, Sarah Stoddart, founder and director of Vitality Law Australia, talks about how to mitigate the impacts of unexpected events by encouraging you to think ahead and explore what you can do right now to minimise risk to your business in the future. I hope you enjoy the session. Very lucky to have her. She is the owner and sole director of Vitality Law in Australia. Pretty well her whole practice is pharmacy. She knows pharmacy inside out, back to front. There's probably, there's only a a small percentage that aren't. I suspect that's family, Sarah, or others who are are tapping you on the shoulder. But she is an absolute expert when it comes to pharmacy, has a wealth of experience. So without further ado, I'll bring her to, to the table. She's going to be really talking about managing the legal implications of unexpected events and be able to talk to some of these results.
0: Thanks very much, Jonathan, and thank you to those of you who participated in that one. The answer is actually 18%. So the yellow column there is the correct one. Uh, And I have to say that when I found that statistic, I was actually quite surprised myself. And this is work that I do day in, day out. So 18% of pharmacy transactions had some connection with an unexpected event that didn't involve COVID and didn't involve a natural disaster. Now, natural disasters are something that has um, touched almost every state of Australia. So there has been a lot of matters coming out of uh, natural disasters and particularly with the floods in various states. So that doesn't include this. So we're talking things like um, unexpected disability, death or dispute. Um, that has arisen and that's what we're going to chat about today. So no presentation by a lawyer would be complete without a disclaimer. Um, So there it is up there in very small print for you. Essentially it says that what I'm presenting today is general information only, not to be taken as legal advice. I'm very happy to advise separately if there are any particular issues you want to discuss. So, who am I and why am I here? So, as Jonathan said, my name is Sarah Stoddart, founder and director of Vitality Law Australia. We are Brisbane-based, but a commercial law firm that services pharmacists across the whole country. Uh, We do business sales and purchases, uh, applications to the ACPA under the location rules, ministerial discretion applications and objections, um, commercial agreements such as partnership agreements, uh, leasing employment as well. So basically any issue that touches your pharmacy business, uh, aside from anything drug or TGA related, uh, is something that we can assist you with. In addition to that, I have a personal passion for business education and for educating pharmacists on the business components of essentially your greatest asset being your business business. So um, that's something I'm particularly passionate about and if you know me, you'll know I'm often involved in webinars and also recently launched a pharmacy business mastermind program. The next round of that is kicking off in February next year. Why am I here? Well, I'm not here to be doom and gloom. I know I'm the last session and I'm standing between you and drinks um, later on, but I'm here to empower you with the information that you need to basically start thinking about What if these things happened in your business and what can you do now to minimise the risk um, if these things do occur? And as you've seen in the stats, they absolutely do occur. Life happens when you're making other plans. We all have examples of something in life that takes us out of nowhere and whilst we've been making other plans. They're the things that throw us into absolute chaos and distract us from what it is that we actually want to be doing. But it doesn't have to be that way. Let's have a look at some of the things that I'm talking about and what you can do about them. So these are the topics that we're going to cover and some may resonate with you, some may be things you haven't contemplated or if you are not in a partnership, then obviously the ones that involve a partner may not be as relevant. So as I mentioned, you'll notice natural disasters aren't on the list They are, of course, unexpected, um, but also a whole topic of their own, which I'm not going to go into today. However, some of the solutions that we will discuss can actually be applied to natural disasters, so you can put things in place, and an example is a policy and procedure that can be implemented if you need to do something very quickly, and I know I'm talking to pharmacists and you've been through COVID and you dealt with changes literally overnight, so you would be used to having to do that now, um, but actually documenting a process. So um, we need to take action to deal with these sort of events, departures of key employees, partnership disputes, which are actually becoming really common, um, retirements, and then death, either of a partner or of a sole owner. So let's have a look at departure of a key employee. So you know that employee that's your right hand knows what needs to be done before you even know? Yep, that one. They've resigned. It's very unexpected. What are you going to do about that? So some of the impacts of a resignation of a key employee, and you can think about who that person might be in your business, include the financial costs of the exit and recruitment. So I'm talking having to pay out their accrued leave and if they've been there for a long time, that leave liability might be significant. The cost of finding someone new, whether you do that yourself or go uh, via a recruiter, And then the cost of actually having to train that new employee, Um, those those costs can be quite significant. Business disruption, um, disruption to the loss of knowledge that person may have had that wasn't documented anywhere. Team morale, that can cause huge disruption and, of course, disruption to your customers, particularly if we're talking a key employee that was customer-facing. Emotional costs, definitely not to be underestimated. Uh, Devastation, usually for the owner, as well as distraction. You can also have the same emotional costs from the actual employee that is departing. And particularly once your staff are informed of their departure, it can really throw them off as well. Communication and handover. So there can often be a breakdown of communications when this sort of thing happens. You need to manage the handover, when the person's going to leave, what they've got, how they're going to apart anything um, that's stuck in their head and how you're going to capture that. So some of those might have been quite obvious and others less obvious, but all of them have an impact on your business. So what are the solutions? Communication is absolutely key. So you want to try and I guess minimise the surprise factor of the departure of the employee and keep in regular communication with your staff, particularly your key staff, as to how they're going. And hopefully that might give you some insights if there's something not quite up or if they're um, exploring other options. An excellent employment contract. Um, that needs to cover appropriate notice periods, systemizing handover processes, uh, restraint of trade is another issue, particularly for key employees because you don't want them going down the road to a competitor. And we're going to touch on what actually makes an excellent employment contract a bit later on. Leave liabilities. Now, these can be absolutely significant for key employees. If they haven't taken a day of leave while they've been with you, they're potentially going to have um, a lot of leave liability. And that means you're left having to pay a lump sum out to them, uh, which can uh, have an impact on your business and cash flow. You also want to manage your leave liabilities by encouraging regular breaks, um, preventing burnout, but also preventing that leave liability from increasing. Workplace manual is something we're going to touch on, as well as policies and procedures. You can actually put things in place that will help you if this key employee decides to leave. So, as I mentioned, what actually makes an excellent employment contract? Now, first and foremost, one that's actually in place. Um, the number of times that I ask a client to produce an employment contract to deal with a situation and to, only to be told that there isn't one uh, in existence is a little bit concerning. Now, you do, of course, have the Pharmacy Industry Award, which does give a degree of protection. But when we're talking about a key employee, you absolutely want more than just what's in the award clear exit terms. What is going to happen when this person leaves your business? Um, how, How are the parties essentially going to get out of the relationship? You need to tailor your employment contract to the key employee. This person is absolutely um, required in your business and it it does play a key role. So you need to make sure that if you are doing things like giving them additional benefits, and I do see a lot of that, um, that that is actually documented in your employment agreement because unfortunately it's often not and then the time comes where the staff member decides to leave. There might be, for example, a car involved and there's some question marks over who might own the car for example, or who's responsible for payment of the costs associated with it. It doesn't always have to be an asset. Sometimes I've seen uh, certain financial bonuses or employers contributing to certain expenses that the employee might have in their personal life. Consider extended notice periods. So, as you may be aware, the Fair Work Act does provide notice periods that employees have to give on termination of employment. That is a minimum and it's based on their period of service. The only time that doesn't apply is if you have a contract that provides for a longer notice period. So, if, for example, a staff member is required to give two weeks, you can in your contract have that to four weeks. Uh, And that would provide you with a little bit more time to get things sorted if this key employee does decide to leave your business. So don't think you have to go with the notice period that is in the Act. You can go more than that. You can't obviously have a contradiction between um, what what you're saying is in the contract and then saying that the Act applies, for example. Um, Consider forced leave periods. Now, that does sound a little bit harsh, but what I'm saying is what I touched on earlier about ensuring people have breaks and the purpose for that as an employer is to reduce that leave liability. And finally there, but another topic of its own, is to consider an IFA. So I'm talking an individual flexibility agreement. The award does say what you can and cannot have in an IFA, and it is quite particular about that, but sometimes and that can be quite beneficial in certain circumstances. So what about manuals, policies and procedures? Put them in place. Now, I know this seems like an absolute mountain of work, and it absolutely is, But at the end of this presentation, I'm going to issue you with a challenge that might make it a little bit more easy to digest and start um, doing these sort of things and putting them in place. You need to document all of your processes so that essentially someone can walk into your business and pick up where that employee left off. So what you're trying to do is capture the knowledge that is in these key employees head and get them down on paper. So that's where your manual comes in. Policies and procedures are necessary to deal with um, basically the day-to-day things in the workplace. I know, you know, you know what policies and procedures are, but there are changes. Social media is becoming a really big one about how employees um, communicate where they work and what they're saying about their workplace. Um, so yeah, policies and procedures. Now, if you are stuck on policies and procedures and where to start, which ones are key, which ones do I have to put in place first? um, that sort of thing, please contact me. Um, there are brochures on the table. There's brochures near the coffee cart and my details will appear on the last slide. I do have a checklist, which essentially sets out what is key and what is the purpose of particular policies. And you can start to work through that but it does give you a starting place when you think the mountain is just too big to climb. Um, Seek employee input is another one. So, it's all very well for you to sit and type a manual of policies and procedures, but unless you're actually the one that's executing every single day, you might actually not be accurately capturing what is actually involved. So, making sure you get input Input and as detailed and specific as possible as to what do we actually do uh, when we're dealing with XYZ issue that we need to put down on paper. That one is particularly important for your workplace manual, less important for your policies and procedures because that tends to be more of the owner's decision anyway as to how certain things will be dealt with. Regular reviews are really important so the days of annual performance reviews need to be over. It is too late to wait a year after something has happened to raise it with your employee. You need to be checking in with them regularly. I know it's hard work and I know you're busy, but checking in regularly so that things can actually be addressed before you're sitting in a meeting and saying, you know, eight months ago this happened and I wasn't happy about it. That's not fair on anyone and it makes it really hard to address the issue. You need to be doing things as they're happening. Control consistency so that, you know, you need to have consistency between all of these documents that you're putting in place. And finally there, consider the enforceability. Now, what I mean by that is a lot of employment contracts say, we have policies and procedures in the workplace, they do not form part of this employment contract. That's fine if you've made a conscious decision for them not to form part of your employment contract. But it also might be unintentional and you may not know that's there. So if, for example, using a straightforward example, an employee turns up under the influence of drugs and you've got a drug and alcohol policy, that's fine. But if the drug and alcohol policy doesn't form part of your contract, you may have problems terminating that employee if that was the path you wanted to go down. What you need to do is firstly make a decision whether your policies and procedures will or will not form part of your employment contract and then if they will, making sure your policies and procedures aren't actually binding you as an employer to more that you're bound to do by law unless you choose to do so. So you don't want to promise the world and then be legally obliged to actually promise the world. So, as I mentioned, if that's a bit daunting, reach out because I do have a checklist that will be a good starting point for you. Next one is a partnership dispute. As I mentioned, I am unfortunately seeing this more and more common. I don't know if it's the stress of the last few years, um, but they're coming up a lot and it can be quite significant um, and difficult to deal with. So, let's dive in and have a look at the impacts and solutions of a partnership dispute. The next few events are actually all relating to partnerships. So, we're going to go through those and then look at uh, in more detail what you can actually do in terms of mitigating and minimising the risk being a well-drafted partnership agreement. So, um, there are a lot of partnership structures out there. Not a lot of them have partnership agreements governing the relationship uh, and that is a genuine concern, um, particularly if you do get into a dispute. So what are the impacts and solutions? Now, these ones won't come as a surprise. Significant financial costs, and I do mean significant, uh, particularly if you have to go down a court path. A relationship breakdown, fairly obvious. Um, If there is a dispute, chances are the relationship is going to break down. Partnerships are very akin to a marriage. In fact, I think marriages are easier to get out of than a partnership. So the relationship breakdown can be really significant. And not only is it impact on one family, there's actually impact on two families when we're talking about a partnership business disruption, um, there is a very clear correlation to the impact on the business as well as staff morale when there is a dispute going on between the owners and potential forced outcome. What I mean by that is if a partnership dispute gets bad and they do get bad really quickly, um, we can be looking at court audit outcomes or potentially putting in the hands of a receiver or administrator. So that can be really, really significant and can also really quickly erode both the cash flow and the goodwill. So what do you do about it? Well, if you are going into an existing partnership, uh, you need to do good due diligence. You need to know who you're dealing with, uh, whether you actually have a fit for them as a person, what their views are on particular things, very similar to going into a marriage. An excellent partnership agreement, so we're going to talk about that. You will see this on every slide relating to partners, so um, there is a reason for that. You need to have a partnership agreement if you are in a partnership. Retirement of a partner is up next. Now, you might associate retirement with age, and yes, that does happen, but it also might come about due to disability or illness, and I suppose that is where the unexpected nature of retirement might come in. You never know what's around the corner. Your partner might get hit by a bus tomorrow and be totally and permanently disabled uh, and then perhaps can't work in the business or, even worse, doesn't have the cognitive ability to assist with the business decisions, forcing a retirement. So what are the impacts of that? Common themes once again. Financial cost, increased workload. So if your partner, particularly if they are an active partner in the business, suddenly gets knocked out, Um, That's going to increase the workload on the other owners and partners, business disruption, emotional cost, of course, and the risk of a new partner. So, if a partner becomes um, disabled or ill and has to retire, um, and the continuing partners don't have the capacity to buy out the retiring partner's interest, it may be that the interest of the retiring partner needs to be sold to a third party. So suddenly there's a new person in the partnership relationship and that may not go as well as you had planned. So there is a risk that bringing a new person in could upset the apple cart uh, and you need to, um, obviously that person needs to do due diligence, as I said, but also as continuing partners, you need to consider what the impact of that is and how you're going to essentially assess and interview that partner coming in. So what do you do? We'll talk about partnership agreements, but also communication. Obviously, you can't predict someone getting hit by a bus, um, but if there is an illness involved, keeping in touch with your partners to actually know how they are really going and how they're travelling through life. The next one, bit of doom and gloom. Again, not necessarily age-related, can be due to illness or injury. Uh, So that is the death of a partner. So impacts and solutions of that. Very common themes, once again, the same really as if a partner has to retire. So, whether they're retiring or dying, unfortunately, the impacts can be the same. Um, but looking at the solutions for that, again, common themes there. The last slide is cut off, but it's appropriate insurances there on that last bullet point. But what I wanted to say here is in relation to the estate planning. So, estate planning is a whole other area, but you need to basically realise that if you hold your part, your partnership interest or your ownership interest other than as an individual, so I'm talking in a company or trust structure, your estate, your will may not necessarily deal with that. That is because a company is a completely different legal entity. I won't bore you with the legalities of things, but essentially just because you might have a will as an individual does not mean that your pharmacy business is accounted for. Um, So you need to make sure that when you are estate planning, that there is an interaction between you as an individual and how you actually own what is probably the most major asset of your life, being your pharmacy business. So you need to ensure that alignment and that does take careful planning. Please do not go into a post office and get a will kit off the shelf. Appropriate insurances that, again, is really tricky when it comes to partnership, whether you're insuring your own life, the life of your partners, cross insurance, that kind of thing. Talk to an insurance broker or an estate planning expert about that and also seek appropriate advice because you want to make sure that you have that in place. Uh, we don't expect our houses to burn down, yet we insure our houses against fire. This is exactly the same. So finally, we get to partnership agreements. And again, I do have a checklist on this because I get calls a lot saying, we don't have a partnership agreement. We don't even know where to start. What do we put in it? And I say, here, here's a checklist to actually initiate the discussions between the partners so that you can start talking about things and actually get a sense of where you sit on certain issues that might arise. Once you have an agreement on how you might deal with certain issues, then we can put a partnership agreement in place. If you're interested in that checklist, once again, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to share it because it is super important, if you haven't got the message already, that you put one of these agreements in place. So, what are the key considerations um, for what goes into your partnership agreement? So, time frame for retirement. So, we've spoken about retirement, but what actually is the time frame? Now, this is going to depend, of course, on what the circumstances are, because if someone's been hit by a bus, um, obviously, they need to retire sooner than someone who's actually making a decision to retire due to age or stage of life. But you need to ensure that when a decision is made to retire, there is appropriate notice given to the other partners of that. Uh, particularly if it is somewhat unexpected, because it is essentially a transaction that needs to occur and you need to plan for that, work out well, who's buying the interest, who can afford it, what if no one can afford it, what happens then, is a new partner coming in Are we're selling the whole business, there's a lot of considerations. So what time frame are you actually going to work with? And to give you an idea, I usually see six months uh, as the notice of retirement period What is the impact of disability? Now, this is a really actually difficult one, um, because disability can be very varied, as you would know. So, if someone becomes disabled, what what sort of level of disability are we talking? Are we talking total and permanent um, impairment? Are we talking cognitive disability? Are we talking an inability to work a certain number of hours in the business per week? This is why you need to be having discussions with your partners rather than just putting something in paper and hoping that it sticks. So, What is going to happen if someone actually is disabled and what level of disability? Because obviously, if it's your managing partner who's in the business day-to-day and they suddenly become disabled such that they're physically disabled, that's going to be different to if your partner um, who doesn't work in the business is physically disabled but still cognitively quite able to contribute. Leave entitlements something that is often overlooked because not all partners are employees in the pharmacy business. So if you are a partner and you are not employed by the partnership um, and you're getting just dividends as your payment, are you actually entitled to any leave? The law says no, unless your partnership agreement has something in there. So if you'd like a holiday, and I know that all of you do, uh, you need to have something in there saying what your entitlement is to holidays. Um, Women and men, uh, parental leave is another really important one because say, for example, you have a clause in your partnership agreement that says if a partner doesn't contribute to the business for a consecutive period of four months, they are taken to have retired from the business, what happens to the parent? Um, who is out of the business because they've just had a child. Uh, Again, the parental leave entitlements by law won't apply. So if you have a partner that is of childbearing age or child caring age, they probably need to be looked after in terms of uh, how that parental leave period is going to be dealt with. Uh, That is a big issue, actually. It's bigger than you think uh, when I'm drafting partnership agreements and particularly for younger partners coming in of that age bracket. Uh, exit and winding up. Another really important one. So, what happens if a partner wants to exit, uh, either because they've had enough, either because they're moving on to something else? Uh, so, what actually happens? Who do they sell to? Can they sell to another partner? What happens if another partner doesn't want to buy their interest? Can they go to a third party? Do the continuing partners have to approve that third party? There's actually a lot to consider when you start thinking about it. Uh, What is the time frame on the exit? How much is their sale of interest going to be worth? Who determines how much it's worth? Is it a roundtable discussion or are you going to go to a valuer? If you're going to a valuer, who's paying for the valuer? So you can see that there is complexity to it and this is why you need to be having the discussions and having them before you are in dispute Because once you're in dispute, I can guarantee you won't agree on anything. Um, So having the discussion about a partnership agreement up front, ideally before you're in the partnership, but if you're already in it, don't fear, it's not too late. Um, Put something in place now while the relationship is good. I often say to clients... The same example I gave before, we insure our house for fire. We don't expect it to burn down. Um, So why not put a partnership agreement in place? It is very similar to an insurance in that if something does go wrong in your business, you pull that document out and it will hopefully set out what is to happen. The best partnership agreement is the one that sits in the bottom drawer. Why? Because it means the partnership is going well. But it is there if you do need to pull it out. Winding up, so touching on back to the exit one, winding up, very similar thing. If you decide to call it quits and everyone's out, what is the time frame for that? Who are you going to sell with? Who has the final say as to who the buyer is? What is the price? Who's determining the price? Which broker are you engaging to sell the business? How long has that broker got to sell the business? What if they don't sell the business in that period of time? So a partnership agreement, a good one, will set through those exact steps so you're very clear of what the process is that needs to be followed. Options to acquire interest, another one that comes up a lot, particularly in situations where you have a more mature age partner and a more junior partner. A junior partner might not be able to acquire as much as they want to at the beginning, so they might go in on a lower percentage with the intention to increase interest in the future. Now, if there's been a discussion about that, that's great, but the discussion is not worth a lot unless it's in the partnership agreement. So dealing with at what point in time can a partner decide to buy more, how much more they can buy, what is the price, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, a partner at the other end of their career might want to know that in five years out, five years' time, they're out of the business and they want to plan for that. And therefore, they might provide that in two years' time, these partners take X percentage. In four years, it's X percentage till they get to a point where that partner is out. Those things need to be dealt with because if it is left to a discussion and left at a discussion only, uh, it's only a recipe for disaster down the track. Price, as I mentioned, the other thing on acquiring more interest, and we do see this a little bit, um, Keen as Mustard pharmacist comes in, um, a lot of expense obviously involved in that, particularly if you're in a state like Queensland, where stamp duty is an absolute killer. Um, they come in and then in a year's time, they decide, oh, actually, this isn't for me, I want out. Now, you can imagine the disappointment of the other partners, but also that gut-wrenching feeling of... Of having to go through it all over again so for that one we put clauses in um, if the parties want it that the expenses will be paid by the partner if they decide to leave the partnership within a period of time so basically if someone goes in but then wants out say in the first three years uh, they have to pay the costs of that. Rights and timeframes. So that's basically anything else. Things like um, what if you have other interests, whether that's other pharmacy businesses or otherwise. Um, Where can you own another pharmacy business? So can you open up down the road with another pharmacist essentially in competition with your business? What are the responsibilities? So who's going to be in the pharmacy day to day um, and who is not expected to be in the pharmacy every day? And is that okay? So you can see there is a lot to it, um, but it is really important to just start chipping away at these conversations. Finally, an off-partnership's death of a sole owner. Now, unfortunately, this can happen um, and can happen very unexpectedly. I had a matter this year where the pharmacist committed suicide in the pharmacy um, and the family and young family they were, were left to pick up the pieces. The spouse was not a pharmacist. So not only is the spouse dealing with the very unexpected death of their partner and trying to manage their children, uh, they're also trying to navigate how to operate a pharmacy business and how to dispose of a pharmacy business. So impacts and solutions. It goes without saying that the emotional cost, um, if that were to happen, is absolutely immense. Um, financial cost um, for that spouse, they were left having to pay expenses that are uh, on top of funeral expenses and other expenses, you can imagine, were quite unexpected. Increased workload. Um, so as I mentioned, not only is the spouse trying to manage the children, but also trying to run a business that they had no idea how to run, and I mean that with the greatest respect. Um, business disruption goes without saying. Loss of knowledge, literally in an instant how that business was operating was gone that knowledge was gone unless you have those manuals policies procedures in place it is it can happen that fast that it is just gone so no one knew where the bills were at when stock was coming in um what you know what was going on literally so it was a complete mess as you can imagine uh, and there are critical time frames which I'll touch on in a moment so what do you do? Well, you communicate. If that happens, you pick up the phone and you call someone. It is hard, but you need to pick up the phone and call someone. If you do have someone like a lawyer, that would probably be the person that I, that you'd call um, aside from family and that sort of thing, of course. Um, You need to ensure you have appropriate estate planning in place. I am not a wills and estates lawyer. I do have that area in my practice, um, but I I don't do it. Uh, I have another team member who does it. Um, But as I mentioned, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you have a will that your business is captured and will be appropriately dealt with. Uh, It doesn't always work like that, particularly if you're under a company or trust structure. So making sure you put that estate plan in place and knowing who to talk to and when. So on that, what do you actually do? And I'm, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with this, but I thought I would raise it um, just in case you are wondering, but also because... None of us know when we're going to go and when our time is up. So if you, um, if your spouse, for example, is a non-pharmacist and they have been appointed to manage your affairs on death, you might want to communicate this to them or um, write it down somewhere that they would find fairly quickly uh, in the event of your death so that they at least know the first steps. Um, you need to advise a state regulator, obviously, as required, depending on whatever state you are in. You need, and I say you, but please get advice and get someone to help you out with this. You need to notify the Department of Health and obtain a Section 91 approval, which essentially allows the executor to run the pharmacy for a period of time. And importantly, and one that people are often not aware of, is that you need to dispose of the interest or the pharmacy business, as the case may be, within 12 months. Not a lot of time when we're talking about death, Um, but it is 12 months from the date of death that the business needs to be disposed of. The will to succeed is important, but what is more important is the will to prepare. And this is where I issue you with a challenge. You might be familiar with it. It's the 24-7-1 principle. What I want you to do is within the next 24 hours, pick one thing out of this presentation to focus on one thing that you're going to do in the next 24 hours. Maybe that's the one that presents the biggest risk to your business or maybe it's the one that really hit your heartstrings when I was talking about it. Then in the next seven days, do something else to get closer to that end goal. So if, for example, you're going to tell your spouse about what to do if you die suddenly, you make that decision today or in the next 24 hours. In the next seven days, you print that slide and stick it somewhere, probably not on your fridge. That's bad karma. Um, And then in the next month, you get that thing done. So if it's a partnership agreement, make that decision in the next 24 hours to do it. In the next week, reach out to me for the checklist and start having a discussion with your partners. And then within the next month, get it done. I guarantee you that the relief that you will feel with knowing that you are more prepared for the unexpected events that could impact on your business uh, will be quite astounding. You'll, you will feel like a weight has lifted. As promised, those are my contact details. Please feel free to get in touch. I am Brisbane-based, like I said, but I do help pharmacists across the country and I'd be really happy um, to chat with you at any time. I am also around for the rest of the afternoon and tonight as well as tomorrow morning uh, and hanging about in the Trade Hall as well. Uh, We are sponsoring the coffee cart. I've been told it's good coffee, so I hope that's the case. Um, Please keep caffeinated and I look forward to chatting with you uh, over the rest of the conference.
1: Now, just quickly, we do have a little bit of time. So, does anyone have any questions? I might put Sarah a little bit on the spot here.
0: I'm just interested in the restraint of trade clause. What is a reasonable restraint of trade clause? And are they actually enforceable? Because I've been told that they're pretty hard to enforce. Yeah, good question, Kay. Um, I'll deal with enforceability first. Uh, They can be quite difficult to enforce. Um, A lot depends on the region that you're talking about. So, for example, if you're in a CBD pharmacy and your restraint is that your pharmacist can't work within 20 kilometres after they leave you, that's probably not going to be enforceable what the courts look at is the ability of the person that you're trying to restrain to continue to earn an income. Um, That is what that person is trained to do. They are entitled to earn a livelihood for that. Um, So, the court will look at, well, can they reasonably earn a livelihood within a reasonable distance from where they're located? Um, Also relevant to enforceability is um, pay grade, essentially, or skill grade. So, For example, using an example outside of um, pharmacy, a CEO, for example, generally has a greater restraint than maybe accounts payable um, because of the skill set but also because of the impact that they would have. So a CEO moving to a bigger company is obviously going to have a greater impact than an accounts payable person that moves around and isn't so customer-facing or in the media, for example. So there there are those sort of factors at play into enforceability in terms of restraint periods and times um, if you are in a CBD or metropolitan area common restraint is five kilometers for three years if you are more rural I've seen up to 50 80 kilometers for three years um, but it will depend where your nearest pharmacy is um, because if, if if there's only two pharmacies for example and the nearest ones 15 kilometers and you can't put a 50 restri- 50 kilometer restraint on someone. Without boring you to absolute tears about the law, um, there is also what is called a blue line clause and you may have seen it and I get asked a lot about what on earth does this mean Um, and essentially it might have 10, like the restraint period or restraint area is subparagraph A, 10 kilometres, B, 5 kilometres, C, 3 kilometres and you're going well which one actually applies. What a blue line clause does is the first one applies, but if it is challenged and a court finds that it is not enforceable, the next one applies. So 10 kilometres gets struck out, five kilometres applies um, and then you cascade down. What that does is it protects the employer or whoever's trying to enforce the restraint because if you only had one, being a subparagraph A, and the court said not enforceable, then the whole thing's gone and then there's no restraint at all. So, it does have varying factors depending on location and staff member. Um, but you, you can have an a enforceable restraint of trade clause if you're reasonable about what you're actually trying to restrain.
1: Quick question. Um, way outside where I normally think with law and stuff, but for lawyers that dabble and do partnership agreements, um, and for somewhere like myself up on the northwest coast of Tassie, is it common for just any um, like commercial lawyer to, is this like a partnership agreement for pharmacy, is that just transferable from other partnership agreements and is it something where pharmacy owners really should be seeking and you're probably going to say yes, um, lawyers that specialize in this area um, or a are pharmacy owner is kind of setting themselves up for failure by just using Joe Blog's commercial lawyer and is that why there's so many Shit, partnership agreements out there, or you know, what's your take on that with your colleagues out there?
0: A good commercial lawyer should be able to draft a partnership agreement. Unfortunately, there are too many lawyers who say they can do a partnership agreement but can't, um, either because they're not commercially—that's not their focus—or and I get asked this a lot. Sarah, have you got a template in a partnership agreement we can use? No. Why not? Because every partnership agreement should be tailored to the partnership. So you often see the really rubbish partnership agreements because it's a stock standard off the shelf that lawyers rolled out the same one to 15 different businesses. Uh, That's why... Uh, my view is you really need to tailor your partnership agreements to the par- um, actual partnership, which is why you need to have these discussions about certain things because what you might think is reasonable might be very different to the business down the road. In terms of the pharmacy question and using a pharmacy-specific lawyer, I am going to say yes, but the reason for that is things like the time frame for death of an owner um, because uh, obviously the um, – the, The time period still applies to the death of an owner in a partnership. It's often easier to dispose of a partner's interest than a sole owner, obviously, because there's other partners to acquire but for example if you don't have a partnership agreement the argument over that can take well over 12 months or if there is a partnership agreement not prepared by someone who with knowledge of the pharmacy space they may not be aware of that time frame and suddenly the time frame they're putting in is within 3 years the interest must be disposed of well automatically you're in breach of the national health act it's been a great day we've heard a lot thank you very much
1: Sarah has shared some really great advice about what you can do to lessen the impact of unexpected events in your business. And Sarah also has many other free pharmacy-related resources on her website, such as webinars, podcasts, and blog posts on different topics. And you can find links to the resources in our show notes. If you are interested in hearing more insightful live sessions that can help you be more successful in your business, be sure to register for this year's 2023 APP Conference. APP is the largest pharmacy conference in the Southern Hemisphere for networking, upskilling, and professional development, and it attracts over 6,000 industry professionals and students to the Gold Coast Convention and Exhibition Centre each year. This year's conference is full of interesting and important topics. You can learn about the secret sauce to building a better business, full scope of practice, how to prevent cyber attacks on your pharmacy and so much more. Register now so you don't miss out. Until next time, I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to Episode 117 of the PBCN Podcast. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.